Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Miriam Gedweiser, in memory of Rabbi Reuven Cohn. Hello again. My name is Miriam Gedweiser, and I teach Talmud and Tanakh at the Drisha Institute and at the Ramaz Upper School, both in New York. When I was around middle school age growing up near Boston, two visionary members of the community founded an organization called Ma'ayan to provide serious continuing education in Torah to the women of the greater Boston Jewish community. My earliest memories of learning Mishnah and of learning Torah at all outside of school come from the Mishnah classes my mother and I took through Ma'ayan, taught by Rabbi Ruven Kohn. There was something thrilling for me about just the fact of learning with adults, but also about Rabbi Kohn's way of explaining the underlying logic of the different positions recorded in each Mishnah. Rabbi Kohn was an iconic teacher in the Boston community and continued teaching adults and children for decades. Rabbi Kohn passed away suddenly earlier this year in Tishrei 5778. In keeping with the tradition of learning Mishnayot in memory of the deceased, I studied the Mishnayot of Tractate Sota as part of a communal siyam or completion of the entire Mishnah. This episode is dedicated to Rabbi Kohn's memory. Tractate, or Masachat Sota, deals with the laws of the so-called wayward wife based on the passage in Bamidbar Numbers, chapter 5. As the topic may suggest, it can be a difficult Masachat to study from a contemporary perspective, but I hope I will give a taste of how the Masachat also presents a rich and inspiring meditation on the power of the Oral Torah. It's worth spending some time with the biblical passage so we can understand just how significant, and some would say radical, the rabbinic approach to these laws is. The passage about Sota begins in Numbers 5, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, If any man's wife has gone astray, ish ish ki tiste, the source of sota, ki tiste ishto, and acted unfaithfully, or we might translate as treacherously against him, and that a man has had carnal relations with her unbeknown to her husband. Now here, let's pay attention to the Hebrew carefully. Venistera, she is hidden away. Vehinitma, she is defiled. Ve'ed einba, there is no witness against her. Vihi lonit pasa, she is not caught, or some read this as she was not forced. And a fit of jealousy comes over him, and he is wrought up about the wife who has defiled herself. Pause for a moment. Until this point, we're presented with a wife who has committed adultery on the sly and has not been caught. The husband's jealousy seems like it's probably born of suspicious circumstances that simply do not rise to the level of legally actionable. Now the passage continues. Or, if a fit of jealousy comes over one and he is wrought up about his wife, although she has not defiled herself, all of a sudden we learn that the suspected wife may not be guilty at all. But whatever the woman's true behavior, the Torah then prescribes what the husband can, or perhaps must, do. He should bring her to the temple, where he will bring a sacrifice called minchat kinaot, the grain sacrifice of jealousy. The priest then makes a potion out of sacral water and dirt from the temple floor, uncovers the woman's hair, and administers an oath to her. By agreeing to the oath, she affirms that if she has been unfaithful, she will experience physical ramifications. Litzbot beten vilin pol yarech. 
her belly will distend and her thigh will fall, or some understand this to mean she will experience uterine prolapse. The passage later adds that if she is innocent, she will conceive. The priest writes the oath on parchment, dissolves the writing in the potion, and gives the woman to drink. For probably obvious reasons, this passage has given pause to many modern readers, particularly women. Is a husband's jealousy really all it takes to subject a woman, whom the text acknowledges may very well be innocent, to public humiliation? What do we even make of the language of defiled when it comes to an adulterous woman? What does it mean to determine guilt through a seemingly magical trial by ordeal? I don't have answers to all these questions, but I think they're useful to hold as we segue to the Mishnah. Mishnah Sota contains nine chapters organized more or less around the sequence of events that lead up to and then comprise the Sota ritual. We can get a taste of some of the ways this sequence relates, or doesn't, to the biblical text from the very beginning of chapter 1. The first Mishnah of the first chapter of Sota begins, one who is jealous of his wife. In such a case, we have a disagreement between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua. Rabbi Eliezer says he is mekane with the testimony of two witnesses, but makes her drink with one. And Rabbi Yehoshua says both being mekane and causing her to drink require two witnesses. Wait a minute, what? Didn't we read in the biblical passage, the man experiences a fit of jealousy because the wife has successfully hidden her adultery? Ve'ed ein ba, there is no witness? What are these rabbis talking about? For help, let's look to the next Mishnah. Ketzad Mikanela. Based on the Bible, we would want to translate this as, how does he be jealous of her? But in fact, the Mishnah has transferred this route from kinah, the emotion of jealousy, to a new category we call kinoi, a ritual warning by the husband to the wife. Ketzad Mikanela means, how does he warn her? And the Mishnah answers, he says to her, in the presence of two witnesses, don't speak, maybe speak here is a euphemism for sleep with, so-and-so, don't speak with so-and-so. If witnesses later testify that she has secluded herself with the target of the warning for long enough to have sex, then the husband subjects her to the sota ritual. The rabbis have taken two of the verbs from the biblical sota passage, Kine et ishto and vihi nistira, which on the simple level mean he is jealous of his wife and she was secretive, and turn them into concrete, measurable actions. He warned her, kine, to stay away from a particular man, and she nevertheless secluded herself with that man, nistira. Through this interpretation, the Mishnah has taken some power away from the husband. No longer is a jealous fit enough to drag the wife to Jerusalem. Rather, the process is regularized and legalized. She must be warned with witnesses what actions will produce what consequences and engage in those actions anyway. We should note, though, that the Mishnah may have taken some power from the husband, but it has given more power to the rabbis. Continuing in chapter 1, we learn that the man is first to bring his wife to the local court who sends him with two rabbinic chaperones to Jerusalem. Chapter 1 continues on to the woman's presentation in Jerusalem, and we encounter a second surprise. 
If the woman says, yes, I did it, she is divorced and forfeits her ketubah payment, but she does not undergo the ritual, the oath, or the potion. Whereas in the Bible, the woman is completely passive. In the Mishnah, she only undergoes the ordeal after her own affirmative choices. First, to defy her jealous husband's ultimatum about being alone with a particular man, and then her choice to deny any adultery. Chapter 1 continues with a description of the public humiliation of the Sota who professes her innocence. Beyond the uncovered hair of the Bible, she is partially undressed and made a spectacle. The Mishnah describes this as a form of midah keneged midah, or measure for measure. She uncovered herself for sin, so God exposes her. The chapter concludes with additional cases of measure for measure in the Bible. For bad, characters whose demises match their flaws, such as Samson, who followed his eyes in marrying the wrong woman and ended up blinded. For good, characters including Miriam, who waited, watching to see what would happen to her baby brother Moshe, and so the children of Israel waited for her in the desert when she had leprosy. Chapter 2 of the Tractate continues with the sequence of events of the Sota ritual, discussing the offering, the potion, and the oath. Chapter 3 continues the sequence of the offering and the potion and states that the woman cannot escape the potion by confessing once the oath, which contains God's name, has been erased. At that point, she must drink no matter what she says. According to the Mishnayot that follow, the consequences of the potion for a guilty woman are immediate and deadly. However, if she has other merits, her punishment may be delayed for up to a year or two or even three. It is in this context, in chapter 3, Mishnah 4, that ben Azai asserts, a man must teach his daughter Torah so that if she becomes a sota, a suspected adulteress, not what one wishes on one's daughter, we hope, but she does not suffer her punishment immediately, she will know that it is because of extraneous merits and not because the ritual does not work. Rabbi Eliezer retorts, Whoever teaches his daughter Torah, it is as if he teaches her foolishness or perhaps lasciviousness. This machloket, this disagreement, about whether daughters should be taught Torah, is the foundation of the great debates that continue in our time about what topics should be included in women's curricula. Fortunately for us, we're living in a time when Rabbi Eliezer's dire admonishment has not been borne out, and women's voices are adding substance to the Torah conversation. Chapter 3 concludes with a list of cases where the Sota meal offering is burned rather than consumed, and a list of halachic differences between men and women. Chapter 4 discusses situations where a woman would not be allowed to undergo the Sota ordeal, but would instead be divorced, in some cases forfeiting her ketubah. Chapter 5 turns its lens to the woman's presumed paramour. Just as the waters inspect her, they inspect him. And just as the adulterous woman is forbidden to her husband, she is forbidden to marry her affair partner as well. Chapter 5 then segues into a series of halachot not directly related to the Sota ritual, all introduced with the phrase, Bo Bayom Darash, on that day he expounded. We will return to two of these cases in a moment. Chapter 6 deals with the requirements for witnesses in the Sota process. Both the requirement of a witness at all and the lax rules for such witnesses come from the phrase Ve'ed Ein Ba. The phrase literally means 
and there is no witness against her. But the Mishnah, paradoxically, understands ve'ed einba, there is no witness against her, to mean kol edut sheyeshba, whatever testimony there is against her. Even ordinarily invalid testimony is acceptable to forbid her to her husband. Here again, we see the extraordinary power of the rabbinic reading. Chapter 7 discusses the required language for various recitations. The sota paragraph and the swearing-in of witnesses, for example, may be said in any language. The recitation over Bikurim, first fruit, the statements of the elders who kill a calf, Egla Arufa, in the event of an unsolved homicide near their city, and the proclamation of a priest leading the people to war, among others, must all be recited in Lashon HaKodesh in Hebrew. Chapter 7 continues with the details of several of these recitations. Chapter 8 discusses the declaration of the Mashuach Milchama, the priest who is anointed for battle. Chapter 9 begins with the discussion of the Egla Arufa, the case of a homicide near the city. And this closes off the extended discussion of the different proclamations mentioned in chapter 7. Chapter 9, Mishnah 9, then takes a bit of a turn. Misharabu haratzchanim batla egla arufa. When murderers multiplied, the egla arufa ritual was discontinued. Then, bringing us back to where we started almost, Misharabu hamina'afim pasku hamayim hamarim. When adulterers multiplied, the bitter waters, the sota ritual, stopped. For the rest of chapter 9, the Mishnah launches into a long series of losses over the course of the Second Temple period and after. For example, when the former prophets died, the Urim Vitumim, the ability to receive divine messages through the high priest's breastplate, ceased. The Mishnah continues on an almost apocalyptic note with a list of the degradations that will occur before the Messiah comes. The tractate ends with the statement of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, an ordered sequence of positive character traits that build off of each other. This sequence is actually the basis of the widely studied work Misilat Yesharim. The apparent digressions of the Mishnah to non-Sota topics can be a fruitful source for understanding the themes of this tractate as a whole. A comprehensive discussion is beyond our scope here, but I do want to return, as promised, to two statements from Chapter 5. Chapter 5, Mishnah 2, records that Rabbi Akiva interpreted a verse from Leviticus 11 to prove that a loaf of second-degree impurity is not only impure, but can itself transmit impurity to another loaf. For our purposes, the technical details regarding purity are less important than what happens next. Rabbi Yehoshua said, Who will remove the dirt from your eyes? You used to say, you, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, used to say, that in the future another generation will purify a third-degree loaf. They will not understand it to be impure, because there is no verse from the Torah that makes it impure. Now behold, Akiva, your student, brings a verse from the Torah that it is impure. This strikes me as a startling rabbinic musing on the occasional tenuousness, if we can say so, of rabbinic halachic traditions. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, it seems, knew the correct rule from tradition, but not how it was derived, and feared that without a source it would be lost. Comes along Rabbi Akiva, 
renowned as a creative expositor of the tiny details of the Torah, and finds the biblical source to save the law from obscurity. This is a bit of a contrast to Mishnah 5, the last in chapter 5, which goes as follows. On that day, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Herkonus expounded a verse from Job chapter 13 to prove that Eov, Job, only served God from love. Here we also have a comment of Rabbi Yehoshua. Who will remove the dirt from your eyes, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? Sounds familiar, right? You used to expound all your life that Eov only served God through fear, quoting a different verse. Now behold, Yehoshua, your student's student, teaches that he acted through love. Unlike in Mishnah 2, here the new teaching comes not to confirm the original understanding of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but to contradict it. I'd like to suggest that it is no accident that this chapter comes in the middle, fifth out of nine chapters of Masechet Sota. As I try to show, the rabbinic understanding of the Sota ritual is hardly a straightforward reading of the biblical text. As such, it relies on the power of the oral Torah, the Torah Shabal Peh, for its authority. And in fact, it demonstrates that very power through its codification. In the midst of this amazing exercise of rabbinical exegetical power, we find the remarkable Mishnayot in chapter 5. In one case, Rabbi Akiva's exegetical prowess comes to shore up the traditions of the rabbis before him. But in the other case, the power of exegesis unsettles a prior understanding. It feels to me that we can detect something of a rabbinic awareness that their exegetical power is not uncomplicated that the potential for vitality and new interpretations always carries with it the possibility of straying too far from what came before. In this spirit, the discussion of whether a man must teach his daughter Torah in chapter 3 is also no accidental digression. Should men fear that including women in this conversation, potentially opening up to them the substantial powers of Torah Sheba Peh, will cause them to use that power for bad ends, tiflut, in the words of Rabbi Eliezer? Or can we trust that knowledge will encourage greater respect for tradition, as Benazai asserts? I'm tempted to ask, Mi afar Benazai? Who can bring you so many centuries forward to see your vision becoming reality well beyond the context in which you imagined? as women deepen their commitments by taking their place in the Beit Midrash. Thank you for listening. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjofa.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.